Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And today we are joined by Debbie Owusu Akia, a Black feminist with over eight years of local and international advocacy experience in a variety of roles, ranging from programming and counseling to policy analysis and project management. She is the new executive director at the Canadian Center for Gender and Sexual Diversity. And she has the pleasure of bridging her passion for social justice with international development at Oxfam and volunteering with feminist organizations like the Ottawa Dyke March, um, Harmony House Women's Shelter and Planned Parenthood Ottawa. And when Debbie isn't yelling into a microphone, much like I guess we will be doing today, um, you can find her at protests or organizing events. And she's probably also can be found on a field somewhere playing rugby or baking a cake, which honestly, I'm kind of upset that we're not doing this in person because I would have hoped that she would have brought cake. Anyway, Debbie, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. Um, And so as you know, your bio kind of says, we're gonna be talking today about um, LGBTQ um, uh, policy and how that relates to the federal government and to the election that we have going on right now. And um, something that uh, we were talking about just before we started recording was, you know, as a, as a Black queer woman, you were thinking about, well, what has the government of Canada and the federal government done for you lately? You know, like maybe you can give a little bit of context around that thinking and that experience. Absolutely. So, I liked to play with the like <laughs> the tune of what have you done for me lately? Because I think it's a question, not only myself, but I think a lot of 2SLGBTQ people who cut across multiple intersections are asking. Um, and I think for black queer and trans people, especially after the emotional exercise of educating people, showing up for protests, having to protect our own mental health of all of 2020, Queer and trans people were at the forefront of a lot of that organizing. And I think we cannot um, talk about queer issues. We cannot talk about um, ending police brutality and violence without like looking at the fact that those two intersections are at play. Um, So for me, I'm looking at queer issues at the federal level a little differently than say maybe a white cis gay guy would, who might be super ecstatic that the leader of the conservative party could say the word popper or poppers and like, what are those? Um, whereas for me, as someone who um, doesn't engage in the sexual activity where I would meet that, um, that I'm looking for something a little bit more. Um, for me in particular, I, and this goes to the feminist movement too. As a queer woman, if say we have a majority government in like four years, I'll be 33. Um, and at that time, you know, based off conversations I've had with my partner, we might be starting a family. And so when I look at situations like childcare, for example, when childcare are only, the narrative around it is specifically like cisgender woman with cisgender man, and she has to do the dual economy thing of in the public sector and then the private side of things. And I'm just like, first of all, we have recent data that has said that two us LGBTQ people make significantly less than our cisgender heterosexual counterparts. So when we're gonna use childcare as a way 
of talking about women's navigating of the economy, of our understanding of domestic work. What does that look like for two women families? So I kind of want to know, what are you doing for two LGBTQ families who are navigating things that are completely different than our cisgender heterosexual counterparts? Um, I want to know things particularly about what the federal government is going to be doing with regards to funding the RCMP, who has to this day, um, and to provide a little bit of a caveat, um, on August 28th, it was the 50th anniversary of the We Demand protest, which is the, what is regarded as the first gay demonstration ever. And it actually took place in Parliament Hill in 1971. And the same surveillance tactics that the state had on queer and trans people at that time still exist today. So in the context of defunding the police, in the context of, of reform, depending on who you talk to and which political parties, I'm curious about what that looks like. If we're going to talk about anti-Blackness, if we're going to talk about systemic racism, queer and trans people are also there. Um, and then there's a whole slew of other things. Um, the conversion therapy thing as well. There's the situation with the blood ban, et cetera, trans healthcare, um, what conscious rights really mean in, in all of this. Um, so all this to say in terms of what have you done for me lately, I'm still trying to figure it out because all I know is I'm hearing a lot of promises from the current government, from people who want to seek government. I'm not seeing a lot of action, even from the opposition parties. And that's a little concerning. Well, one of the things that uh, were we talking about this on the last pod, Aaron? I feel like we were. Where the um, the political establishment thinks that we all exist in nuclear families, or we're going to exist in nuclear families. It is so apparent from the conservatives that they have one idea of what a woman is and what role she plays in society, and it's so that caretaker, homemaker, which people can be just different people are it isn't that the whole point of freedom right is that we get to live our lives the way we feel fit barring any you know like murdering people you know what I mean but uh you know that's that's what apparently we're promised in this western idea of liberalization and um I think you know for for me uh, I look at uh, the intersection of race and sexuality, and I think of all the queer leadership we've had in the in the last, like, say, 10 years and how far it's gotten us. It's gotten us pretty like it's gotten it's made its way like and I remember talking to Desmond and I was like, <laughs> it was so funny because I'm going to bring up what we were talking about off mic. <laughs> But I was talking about because I wrote this piece on on Greg Ferguson and and his Catherine McKenna and blackface and stuff. And basically what it was was just like they had there was some meeting that the prime minister. Went to with black leadership and I use that in quote. Yeah, exactly. I use that in quotations because I've seen that leadership and they don't know where the exit is. They really do not. And they need to exit. <laughs> what we need is if we want if we want redemption we really do need queer leadership in these spaces so that's my that's what i've learned in the past say five years or something is how powerful that is and how many movements are started by you know black queers really mm -hmm. so it's it's incredible 
Yeah, and I think that Black queerness is really like a massive part of intersectionality, right? Like you can see it in pop culture and all of everyone who loves drag race and all of those types of shows. And unfortunately, drag race has its own problems and issues with um, intersectionality and everything else. But I think that Debbie, what you were talking about in terms of you and your partner can like thinking about having a family in the future. And that's why intersectionality is so important because, you know, if your partner is racialized, then women of color make less money than, you know, a heteronormative relation, cisgendered relationship, right? So how does that impact um, your, what you're able to provide for your family and how does that impact, you know, and then it goes into thinking about this election and, you know, that's going to influence what party you may support determined on their, their childcare proposals, right? Because that, that, those pro- programs are going to be starting work now, even though you may not be having a family for three or four years. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with the things like childcare and it being like a promise, and I know and I want to give credit to all of the feminist advocacy that got us to this point where through the last federal budget announcement, it was such a big deal. And we're seeing it be uh, a topic that every political party who's trying to vie to make the next government. That's something we have to talk about. I believe, I believe it's 50 years since the Royal Commission on Women, isn't it? Yeah, that really brought it up. (laughs) We've waited 50 years, 60, 50 years for this at least. So yeah. Yeah. For me, I'm just curious about implementation and why intersectionality Mm. from a policy perspective, right? Like there's a difference between it being this concept that you're providing what happens from an implementation side. And for me, I'm curious where the, like the narrative of like who they are imagining this benefiting, it scares me because when this thing actually does come into place, how is it going to be implemented when you're only seeing it benefiting one singular person? And it's the same reason why I advocate for policy specialists and leaders to bring their lived experience because sometimes that's how we close these gaps where people are not left behind. And I don't want to be left behind when you're implementing a policy that will actually hopefully improve the lives and change the lives of queer and trans families. And what would you want to see in that policy that you're probably not seeing now? Good, good question. To make it more, make it more intersectional because I, 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 you know, I think because we don't walk in each other's shoes, like we don't necessarily know each other's, you know, experiences, of course, and that's why you bring them and that's why we listen and that's why that's why you're here, Debbie. Yes. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it's it's like, what does that look like to you? What? OK, not necessarily. I don't want you to do consulting because that costs money. <laughs> OK, people should be paying you for that. But I guess the question I have is what what are some of the features, let's say, you'd like to see? So before I like tackle the future side and not to sound like too much of a social Democrat, but um, I don't think $10 a day should be the benchmark. I don't think that should be the end goal. I think it should be the starting point with the end goal being that childcare in this country be free. Um, Like that's how I literally see it because it's the only way, in my opinion, where we're going to include class as part of this. Yeah. Um, and really ensure that people aren't left behind because there are probably still people where $10 a day is too much 
And yes. I can guarantee you, if you put an intersectional lens on it, these are probably people who have multiple forms of intersecting identities that are informed by the multiplicity in ways like oppression works, right? And so right. for me, the the narrative of $10 being like the end goal, like that's it, this is it, $10, that's, that's the end goal. I'd rather see something a little bit more long-term where we're looking past just $10. Um, and looking to see if there are other countries, and unfortunately I don't have one from the top of my head to point as an example, but like if there are other like-minded countries who have an example of what that possibility could be, looking to them to see if there's policy information or research that we could use to influence that decision-making here at the federal level. Because I don't think $10 a day is still going to be accommodating to the majority of people who live here. I feel like Aaron wants to say something. No, I think I think that's a really a really great point, um, and I think that we I mean we should take that approach to all of our policies, right? Like how far can we push them? And I, I, it's unfortunate that ten dollars a day just sounds nice. It's a nice, very clear visual for people, and they're like, oh, like they know what a ten dollar bill looks like, so it's very very visceral. Um, I think per I child, by the way, per child. Yeah. So if you have more than one child, not everybody can, let's say you have two kids, not everybody can fork out a hundred dollars a week mm-hmm. plus tax. Yeah. Um, and I think I've said this to you before, Erica, and I don't remember what it was in regards to, I think it might've been the housing policies. Um, but I said to that, I said to you and I probably David also that it doesn't seem like any of these parties or any of these candidates know people that aren't exactly like them. Like they have no friends who are poor. They have no friends who are racialized. They have no friends who are queer or like very few. And they're just like, they just don't relate to them or they don't think that they're common enough to think that they need policies that also, where they can also see themselves benefiting from, if that makes sense. Is that Um, a function of not living in community and only living through networks? Hmm. And that's the difference between community and networks. I think you're onto something. I think community is all encompassing. Like we all know the person who, like, for example, in my community, you know, I know the person who takes care of the community garden. You know what I mean? And that person is not necessarily of my ilk, but they're my community. And whereas these guys, and I do mean guys and the women who love them, um, (laughs) These guys um, don't, for them, it's networking, right? And when you network, you, you're only exposed to people who are like you or like-minded, your same class, or else why would you, they be in your network? Because networking it, is so transactional. I think it depends. I think for people who are uh, upper middle to upper class, depending on where you live, no, no, no. I don't see. I don't mean community as in like the, the place where you live. I mean, just community, you know, and I just I feel like the, the, the more we move towards that model is the better off we'll be in terms of the way we think about policy and the way that we structure policy. It just automatically becomes more inclusive or at least moving towards that. It's not it's not the panacea, like it's not a sufficient condition, but I just I just I'm just musing right now, to be honest. Let me get off the mic. (laughs) 
No, I think I think it's an interesting idea. Although I would like, who who would the community be for you know people running for office or people who actually actually know people who are already in office because people who are running for office I think have community and are banking on that community's support, but then I think they become detached from them, particularly as they accumulate more power. <laughs> I think you, that's it. I think that's yeah. it. And I and I I love where this is going because it's very clear even, and I'll bring it back to Swiss LGBTQ issues, that some of these political parties didn't talk to, I think they talked to one gay person and it's probably the one gay guy who happens to be a staffer for somebody. Um, and I emphasize gay, probably white dude. Um, oh yeah. The gay, the, the, the prototypical gay person is like my, I remember my, my, um and i remember uh somebody telling me this that that you know when you see the td ads the lgbtq ads it's it's like the gay lawyer you know what i mean it's still a class issue and it's still a gender issue um and a race issue and so that's what you get and i'm sure that that's who they're thinking about i'm positive yeah, and where that's problematic when they're only thinking of, and here in Ottawa, you know, I'm thinking of the, the Pete Buttigieg type gay who works at the federal government. If that's who you think are thinking makes up the Swiss LGBTQ community, it's so easy for the narrative of the gays already have everything to come up. So when we do ask for more representation, more demands with regards to policy interventions, the response from the mainstream is you folks have it already covered. Y'all can get married, y'all work, my boss is gay. So everything's fine for you folks. But that's because every election, but then also within the Canadian imagination and the state has everything to do with that type of pinkwashing is that we've reduced the acronym that is full of a very diverse range of people uh, dealing with very specific um, oppression, some at the same time. We, we reduce them to a singular group of people and we imagine or codified as a white cisgender middle-class guy who just wants to get married and just wants to, you know, with his little boyfriend or husband or whatever, and that's it. And um, I'm a little sick of it. And not only because they're consulting those people, but if I were to ask, you know, say the conservative government, for example, and probably some, maybe some liberal politicians, are you talking to grassroots queer organizations? Because if you really want to know who's connected to community, and I'm going to even, I'm going to call my own self out, don't even talk to the nonprofits, like the national organizations. Are you talking to grassroots organizations who do not get funded from you folks and are, are connected to community who can actually tell you, especially in the context of this last year, what exactly community needs? I guarantee you none of them can tell me it because I know they're not. We have a national uh, network called the Enchante Network who's made up of grassroots and nonprofit organizations. And I know who's talking to them, unless they're not telling me all the full tea. And I, it sure isn't the conservative government of Canada. It sure isn't the, the Green Party. Um, that type of consultancy looks different. Um, there are mechanisms in place now at the federal government. Um, and I think of the LGBTQ secretariat, for example, where that consultation can happen. But only one party has a leg up on it. And I don't see it translating into what the platform parts are. Mind you, one hasn't released a full platform yet. So waiting on that. Um, but yeah, all this to say that like, 
they're definitely only talking to the one gay guy who's probably a staffer. And it creates this myth that everything is fine for our communities, which I think is extremely dangerous, considering a lot of the data that our own organizations are providing to be like, actually, this is what's happening with our community so far. I see a lot of that sort of pink washing of who um, or what gay looks like or what what a lot of stuff looks like, even what trans looks like, you know, because I think think of Caitlyn Jenner and you wouldn't know that, you know, black trans women are the most likely to be murdered or in the the least amount, Um, uh, you know, do a lot of of sex work and, and so on and so forth. And so I think that, you know, when you think about sort sort of like, I just thought of an intersection, like the broadcasting act, I'm thinking about only fans, but I'm thinking about the broadcasting act. Right. And this is an issue that doesn't seem to be seem to be, uh, um, an LGBTQ issue, but you know, if you're, if, if that's what you're doing, then how does that affect your livelihood, right? Because um, this, especially with what happened with OnlyFans, what's happened with Tumblr, what's a lot of those queer spaces are getting shut down because they are too, I don't know, because I think it's because these people want investors and they're looking to sort of sanitize their image for investors to go public. That's my opinion. But where do you go when those spaces get shut down? And Tumblr was especially a big one because that's where I remember all the sex you can see on Tumblr and like and like also like all sorts of stuff like it was like sexually diverse. And it just it's just gone. And I just think that when technology companies they start out by, you know, building their base on the back of LGBTQ communities. And then um, when they want investors, that's the first, that's the first, you know, group that will be disproportionately affected. And so what do you think of that? If you could add to that, and also where, where all the safe queer spaces where, especially if you're young, you can start interacting and learning without being exposed in a very dangerous way because hate is rising. That's what I know. Oh, we'll talk about hate too. Okay, go on. So like, I really love the like broadcasting act and what you talked about with OnlyFans and Tumblr because it's true. I mentioned this uh, last week. I did a panel for Transport Canada uh, for their public service Pride Week. It was an Ask Me Almost Anything. And I specifically talked about, you know, where 2SLGBTQ people might choose to work because they don't want to deal with the bullshit of mainstream workplaces, including the federal government. And I talked about that a lot of us end up, you know, going to work where we can be our own bosses, whether it's freelance work, gig work, sex work also included as part of that gig work, right? Um, And it's usually the place where we don't have to deal with the discrimination just to enter the workplace. And I'm speaking specifically for, you know, trans folks and trans women of color, particularly black trans women. And so when I, when I, we look at sex work, when we look at um, things like Tumblr and OnlyFans, especially again, in the context of a pandemic, 
it was the place that people from the 2 LGBTQ community went to, to survive. But also it was a choice they made because they felt empowered doing so. And I think, um, who mentioned it? It was, it was actually Aaron O'Toole who talked about um, something in relation to supporting gig workers. I was like, does that also include people who are engaging in sex work? Obviously it doesn't because social conservatism would not let that be. And I think that is exactly one of my issues when um, we only reduce to us LGBTQ people to very singular, a singular group who have these like very singular issues. And it's like, no, because I can guarantee you there would be, if we lived in a world where the state wasn't um, <laughs> evil, we could see something like that where these protections were in place and that again, queer and trans people who are doing this work and have to fear that, oh, great, I now have to look for something else. Backpage no longer exists. I have to go somewhere else. Oh, yeah, Craigslist doesn't work. All these things happened, right? Mm-hmm. We'll tell them back to sex workers who were to us LGBTQ, and I will say mainly also trans women in particular. And so when I think of that, I think of what opportunity there is to really respond to that in a very bold way. And that I think a lot of our politicians, and I would say across the, the spectrum for our top five parties, I don't think they're bold enough because they're also scared. They play to the moderate, the moderate side of the population of trying to toy on like social issues. Like they want to be spicy, but they're going to approach it differently. So like, we're not going to hear defund the police, but we will hear reform. You know, we're not going to hear about um, specifically maybe LGBTQ healthcare, but we're not going to hear trans healthcare. Um, like there's specific language that they're using mm-hmm. and it's creating very boring policy approaches. And it seems like yeah. it seems like that language is like, well, we can only take so much of you. You know what I mean? Don't be fl- it's it just reeks of don't be flaming around us. I don't know. It just like in a policy perspective. You know what I mean? I feel like that's part of what it is. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I think it's good. Um, there's a particular type of homosexual. And there's a particular, I don't even know if trans folks are even in their imagination. Um, I don't even think so. But there's a particular type of homosexual whom they are willing to imagine when it comes to developing programs, policy approaches and platform points, even just like mentioning the acronym once in a policy point. Um, And it is a person who is not flaming. It is not a person who actively lives like not by our own choice, but like embraces our lives at the margin in a way that makes people uncomfortable. They don't want that. The, the assimilationist type of queer or gay, I wouldn't even say queer, the assimila- assimilationist type of gay person is exactly who they are thinking of. Um, someone <laughs> used the phrase white gay boys in gold pum pum shorts at Pride, like that's exactly who they're thinking about. And I think that is a huge disservice to every single person within the community who is trying to survive. And it couldn't have been more evident in the last year that um, queer and trans communities are underserved, underfunded. I haven't even gotten to the funding side of the conversation. Let's get to the funding side of the conversation. Uh, Let's do it. Hold on. Oh, wait, 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 Erin. Oh, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Because that's Um, my favorite part. (laughs) Yeah, this is all very interesting. And I think that um the the assimilation piece is very strongly correlated to the race piece in the workplace right where you can't be you 
you're, you can be black that as black as we allow you to be. You can be as racialized and as ethnic as we allow you to be. Anything else makes us uncomfortable. And this goes back, Erica, to a conversation we had in uh, last week's podcast with David about um, class. You know, people are very, Canadians, public servants, very uncomfortable discussing class. And they don't know how to discuss class because it's it makes us feel dirty. And for whatever reason, Americans are getting better at it, but Canada isn't. It's very much, there's a very much a divide and very much like an ew, you know, type of type of vibe. And I think this goes, you know, with when developing policy, like you said, Debbie, they definitely, policymakers definitely use a very specific type of middle upper class gay person, whether or not that's a lesbian or a gay man, um, but it's very upper middle class. Um, while you know, the reality is, is that there are so many LGBTQ youth who are unhoused and like live in precarious situations and have precarious work. And none of those things are taken into account, even though the data is literally there. There is so much data. And yet we're making quote unquote evidence-based policy, but not actually using the evidence. And it's so ridiculous to me. And, you know, people you know, like me and Erica, like push to get those things included. And the people are just like, oh, well, there's just not enough time. If we made a policy for like everyone, it would do nothing. Okay. Well then who are you leaving behind? Cause you're picking and choosing. There's always winners and losers and you're picking the winners and the losers. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm sure we, I, I would hope we would have learned from the eighties that trickle down anything doesn't work for anybody. But there was um, literally, literally a story that said trickle-down economics hasn't worked. <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 I'm, I would call it like trickle-down like election promises that they're like, if we just say we're going to improve healthcare altogether, it'll trickle down and impact you folks too. There's like a political need. There's a liberatory need to center queer and trans communities when it comes to policy. And that is like my message. If there's a staffer listening today, that is my message. Please take that back to your boss. There is a political necessity and a liberatory necessity to center those communities and not to just assume that, well, if we focus on everybody, like that's part of the problem that is very much rooted in this like neoliberal idea of how we operate the, in the world. And we need to move past that. Um, and I really love what you mentioned with regards to the data. You know, one of the issues from a broader perspective is that we're still struggling for the data to catch up when it comes to us LGBTQ people and we're slowly getting there. I think the LGBTQ action plan process from the federal government's LGBTQ2 secretariat is getting us there. Their first phase was a survey that had I think 30,000 respondents kind of talking about their experiences as LGBTQ people. There was the written submission from LGBTQ organizations but what's really clear and evident is that it's queer organizations who literally have to place together crumbs to pay people to do our own community-based research that is providing the data that actually really matters. I think of TransPulse, for example, who's to this day continuously produces some of the most um, astounding research we have on trans, the trans experience. And I don't know how they're funding, but funded, but it's not StatsCan who's producing this information. 
it's not uh, Public Health Agency of Canada. It is a collective that's doing this. And I'm thinking of folks like EGAL, for example, yeah. who produces research on this stuff. Our own communities are doing that. Um, smaller communities are creating needs assessments, like grassroots organizations are creating needs assessments. And I think it speaks to something that these organizations tend to have to literally, you know, pennies put together to be able to fund and sustain themselves. And it goes back to the funding issue within Canada. Um, our organizations are underfunded. The, the, the latest federal budget announcement promised 15 million for 2S LGBTQ organizations over three years, which is still crumbs. I mean, you hear it 15 is. million and you're like, oh, that's a lot. No. No, 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 no. Because the previous year when they did the LGBTQ capacity grant, I forget what the amount was. I think it was $25,000 and it wasn't enough. There were significant amount of organizations who did not get funding my organization included, uh, but for the orgs that did get that money, they hired their first EDs for the first time ever. They were building their capacity. We're talking about like Northern rural pride centers who can now exist, but that money ends in March, 2022. Yeah. And so now we have a $50 million announcement for three years and the, the issue is still at, like still there. That is still not enough. And so when I talk about like, who's doing the research, who's doing the life-saving work, especially through this last year, it's queer organizations and the funding is minuscule. So when I think of what's the best way to address the issues of queer orgs, uh, people with lived experience, we're the, ex we're the experts in our experience. And mm -hmm. I think we are showing the federal government and other decision makers at different levels that like, your collaboration with us is needed one to know what we want to begin with but to implement it because there is still a level of distrust between our communities in the state um, and we need money for that and so I have not seen any funding commitments to funding to us LGBTQ organizations both grassroots and nonprofits. and I think that would be really nice. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that, you know, even as we talked about, again, on last week's podcast, there it or maybe the week before, but there is no mechanism to ensure that the organizations that already have capacity to deliver these programs are getting the money. Because like, is it important for Northern and rural areas to get access to these funds. So like you said, they can hire their first executive director, 100%. But if that funding is so tenuous and they're only able to hire one person, like how, it's just so hard to, to make sure that they're delivering the services they need to be delivering where someone who's a little bit more established, but maybe still grassroots and not necessarily a national organization is still able to, is able to do, go there, the dollar goes a little bit further, if that makes sense. And like, it's, is it fair? Absolutely not. But it depends. I think it's more like, you got to really measure the impact. And I think that we don't know how to do that. But I, I'm not sure that there's that much duplication, right? That's the other thing, because like, there would have to be 
I don't know if there's a choice between two orgs that are doing similar things in a similar area. I think a lot of the times what you have is like an org or, you know, covering a certain area or a certain expertise or something like that. And I just think we just need to be more holistic about what we, what the policy suite is. I, I think we need to be talking in policy suites, not like we're going to do this because everything connects. I don't- <laughs> Listen, I, I hit a I nerve. All about this with like the climate stuff is like, everything needs to be considering climate because climate change can literally ruin our economy. Like if there is a catastrophic um, natural disaster, we could go into a significant recession. Like the economy will crash. Uh, Who's talking about that? No one is. Um, But don't worry, Erica, your mic's off. They're hoping it won't happen in when they're in power. Well, yeah. And that's optimism bias, right? Like it's the same as people who live in Vancouver and they're like, oh, we're never getting the earthquake. <laughs> Honey. I mean, I yeah, exactly. yeah. So like, it's really any day now. Yeah. <sighs> you know, I'd like to talk about the intersection of uh, 2SLGBTQ and climate change. That would be awesome. Absolutely. I mean, in, in what way? Like, you know, the 2SLGBTQIA group is like, people are just like, they're marginalized and therefore at higher risk of experiencing like disproportionate effect, negative effects. Like, I... Yeah. And, and then you have, like we were saying, class and income and where are they living? And actually you talked about the unhoused nature of a lot of, you know, LGBTQ youth and um, which has its own risks too. So I think we just covered a lot. I mean, it's, I, I don't know if this is 100% true for the 2S LGBTQIA um, population, but I was speaking to a disaster expert once for an interview um, out in Vancouver, and I asked her, um, you know, in the event that a catastrophic earthquake happened in Vancouver, um, how would that affect the unhoused population? Mm-hmm. And she said that obviously it would be bad, but because they're already living in such horrific circumstances, they are a lot more resilient than we give them credit for. And they actually may be less, um, less affected than we would expect them to be because they, they're used to, you know, being independent and fending for themselves and like, um, they've just got this built-in resilience that someone who is housed doesn't may not necessarily have. Yeah, I think I think that brings up something interesting about like who are we learning from, and especially for policymakers, like who are you actually learning from to inform decisions that you're making? And it goes back to listening to unhoused people, like in the event that you need to prepare for a kind a climate disaster for a group of people who've had to be resilient, that is a wealth of information that can inform preparation for something like that. 
And I would also say very similarly for like to LGBTQ people, we're often talked about being very resilient. And it's like, yeah, we also have a wealth of information that can help inform a lot of decisions that you can make as decision makers. Maybe talk, talk to us. I don't know. I got one. Vaccination. Okay, so I understand that in the U.S., I I swear I saw this somewhere in the U.S., the most the highest vaccination rates are in the LGBTQ community in the states, because I don't know, maybe you guys know something about I don't know. What is it? Oh, um, dealing. What is it? AIDS? Yeah, you you remember that that health crisis that disproportionately impacted our communities and wiped out, you know, a significant population of what would have been queer elders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So again, like this is like there is specified knowledge there. There's specific knowledge there about organizing vaccinations, checkups, um, buddy buddy groups for people who you know, go back, this is off the top of my head, go back and forth to appointments, all of that community stuff. I, you know, apparently um, vaccination rates in that community is like, I want to say 90%, somewhere around there, but it is impressive. Like the mobilization, the organization that um, that's happened especially around COVID is really, can you speak to that? Because I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We are a community who due to the nature of just homophobia and transphobia have learned to rely on ourselves and care for ourselves. And -hmm. I don't mean like individually, I mean as like the collective. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why the concept of chosen families, I think are, very important and would also right. be nice to see within childcare conversations. But mm-hmm. um, for two LGBTQ people, and I, and I saw this here in Ottawa from the beginning, who created the COVID like care groups on Facebook? It was queer black women that I knew who did it and black families who created these COVID care groups where then people were exchanging information on like grocery drop-off, etc. cetera. Um, people sharing information on where to get vaccinated one of the like um, local local heroes here in the city who was like helping mainly Gen Xers like find where to get um, was it Moderna vaccines when they were like, oh, we don't know if people could be using them. Um, this queer Jewish femme who was doing this, you know what I mean? And when I look at the context of like vaccination clinics that really spoke to the community, Maggie's in Toronto, which is a sex worker rights organization, uh, kind of housed within the 519. They had a vaccination clinic in a strip club with queer black DJs to get the community out. And to be completely honest with you, again, that intersection between like trans communities and sex worker communities, Maggie's is led by a trans black woman and has a significant amount of trans programming. And it's because it's a community who understands based off history health risks and again had to take care of ourselves because no one else is going to do it for us and um i think the level unfortunately of distrust that happened with the, with the medical system made us more equipped to find the right information to share with ourselves to protect ourselves i think it literally goes back to history it goes back to community care and like we just do it really well because in a 
homophobic, transphobic system, we only have ourselves. And so right. I really think that is why from the beginning, from the care groups, and I even forgot to mention, it was myself and another queer fan, we created a COVID relief fund. Just, you know, we were working full time and we're like, let's just do this. And I saw that mainly from queer, like leftist people. And so, yeah, it goes back to history, community care, and it's just something that we do really, really well. And policymakers can learn from that. Other, other movements could learn from that too. Absolutely. But not the anti-vaxxers, because obviously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they know how to co-opt phrases like my body, my choice from the feminist, yeah. but oh, any, any, anything oh. else. Oh my gosh. So what do you want to see in this next, what do you want to see happen in this next election? Like what are some of the policies you would like to see, let's say? that would move us towards exactly what you're talking about. Not in detail, but you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I can just kind of spitball some stuff. So I really do think, and I'm thinking of like threats to our community. Um, And I don't know if that like there's, there's, there's the policy side and and not necessarily what the policy response is, but Mm. there are issues that I do think um, often get hidden and I think are important to mention and that this election might open up the window to the broader public. And by broader public, I mean, (laughs) beyond the politically engaged, social justice, feminist, queers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm looking at things with regards to like trans rights. And to be completely honest with you, um, that often is the thing that is left out in discussions of 2SLGBTQ people because we are so focused on Billy and his friends, white boys and gold pump pump shorts. when we're going to look at like uh, our national healthcare scheme, if we're going to talk about, uh, you know, health transfers to provincial governments, et cetera, I think there needs to be, and this is not just me speaking, I take my leadership from the trans femmes and trans women in my life. There needs to be more nuanced conversations on trans healthcare because that is a huge pain point specifically for trans feminine and trans women um, accessing that to be affirmed even within the medical healthcare system. Um, and it's an easy thing for people who do not fuck with our community to want to wave, to be like, we'll pull this away from you. And like, what is there to pull away? Like, even for young people to seek medical care who are trans, that is an, a debatable issue. Yet queer and trans people are nowhere in the room to have that conversation. Right. And so I really do think that if if there is going to be a policy in place or, or something that I think would be very interesting to see is where does trans healthcare fit within the national conversation on healthcare, broadly speaking. Um, I will say, and this, although it's like a common thing that we've been, been talking about in the, the queer t- Twitter sphere, that conversion, th- conversion therapy ban, and I'm going to speak personally for a second. Mm-hmm. For it to be promised not in one election, not two, but now going into three elections when this thing could have been passed before Pride because a certain party wanted it to be passed during Pride to be like, look gays, what we gave to you. Happy oh, we Pride. know what that party is. Um, this could have been done. And the delay, I think, is a slap in the face to a community you constantly say that you're showing up for. Um, and it's infuriating. This, th- there's no debate anymore, like criminalize it. And it isn't just one party's fault. We saw the voting from the opposition party. Yep. You can't, I don't care if you say you are a, a pro LGBTQ rights 
I have no faith in you to ensure that your caucus is going to show up for my community. Exactly. Because the receipts are there. So don't mm-hmm. tell me nothing. I don't trust your leadership to ensure that you're going to keep these transphobes, these homophobes out of your party. And the NDP, I kind of need you to show up a little bit louder. Just a little. We've been little, saying. <laughs> like a little bit louder. And from a personal standpoint, you know, the transnational element to this. Yeah. I'm Ghanaian Canadian. So I have roots in Ghana and I'm very connected to what's happening in my home country. I cannot separate my queerness, my Ghanaian-ness, my, uh, my tribal identity. I'm an chim. I can't separate that from who I am. And right now in my home country, they are introducing a bill that is an anti-LGBTQ bill that is going to put two us LGBT, two, sorry, LGBTQ people in a significant amount of danger and harm, including LGBTQ people who live abroad, including any mm. allies. And a certain portion of it is talking about conversion therapy. And so when we look at it from a transnational lens, what is stopping Ghanaian parents from taking their kids from Canada to Ghana, mm-hmm. getting them conversion therapy, and then coming back like nothing happened without a national legislation banning it? That can't stop. And as someone who worked at the federal right, government, because it, they have to add it to the criminal code, mm-hmm. right? So, so you can you can we use this term, you can ship your kid back home, yeah, to correct their behavior, come yeah. back, and there's nothing wrong with it. And yeah. I look at what has happened with you know harmful practices like female genital mutilation right. or child marriage. We have legislation against that. So when parents right. do do those things, send their kid abroad and come back. There's there are consequences for that, mm-hmm. and so I'm I'm looking at a broader issue, but I'm putting myself in, uh, you know, anecdotally, so people can understand it from a personal perspective. Not passing this on time, while other things are happening in the world, put a significant amount of people, like group of people, at risk because you were selfish. You wanted to show to your opposition party, look, we're better than you. Time it when you knew it was going to be too late and now we risk having this to start all over again. And Mm -hmm. and this is the third time it's being promised. I'm telling you right now, if the gays don't vote for you, you have no one to blame but yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The NDP does have um, part of their platform that says they want to, it's sorry, it says quote, access to gender conforming procedures and medication can be life-saving for some transgender people. The New Democrats will work with the provinces to make sure there is equal access to gender confirming surgery across the country and that these procedures and medications are covered by public health plans. Um, they also say that they want to increase access to um, infertility treatments, but, you know, that's, that's fine. Infertility is fine, but like, does that also include those from the 2S LGBTQ community, right? Like, are we talking about literal infertility or are we talking about expanding access to make sure those, you know, couples like with people with two uteruses or those without, or like, what are we, what are we actually talking here? What are we actually going to be encouraging and providing supports to? That's, that's a really good question because if like, I've learned so much through local organizations like 10 Oaks here in Ottawa who have a shaping parenting program where I've heard from other queer and trans people who've tried navigating fertility clinics 
the, the homophobia and transphobia and fat phobia could not be any more obvious that there is a clear divide between what heterosexual couples that are cisgender get when it comes to their family building as a result of infertility versus queer and trans folks who are trying to build their families. Way different rules. Sperm jail, if you don't know what that is, talk to your local lesbian who's navigated fertility clinics, she'll tell you. Um, that being a thing. And I would love to see that included. Again, I don't want the trickle down thing where you're like, it's going to deal with infertility. No, emphasize it, center us, because then if we see it, we can feel not only just confident in what your party is promising, but maybe hold you accountable, which I think is another part. Yay, democracy. Um, and not yeah. just that election either. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I... I think that, see, I think that that's a really good, um, a really good, like, sort of anecdotal pieces to let people know that, you know, what, if you're heteronormative, or if you're cisgender, how much easier it is to navigate the space and how much the space is oriented towards that as we go back that quote unquote nuclear cisgender heteronormative family and even if you're not in that i feel like canadian policies assumes that that's what you want mm-hmm. yeah you want the quote unquote canadian dream all of the policy proposals say this you know you want your house with your white picket fence with your 2.5 children i guess i'm like 2.5 since the birth rate's down you know, what kind of what kind of space are they giving, you know, LGBTQ over, um, overseas in terms of I, I think they are better at this, to be honest, but I could be wrong. You're going to correct me, Debbie, um, in terms of you were talking about I'm thinking about Uganda, actually, and I'm thinking about, you know, the laws that were passed there. How is immigration um adjusting because I personally think immigration is just anti-black by nature so you know all of these things um maternal health is another one um what does that mother look like well we know what she looks like she's most likely white married to you know has um lives in somewhere in this in this corridor here and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the idea of who's left out, and I wish people would be more, we need to be really um, ex- expressive or, or, or explicit, sorry, about the assumptions that we're making, about who that is. I'm like, why is everybody in a family? <laughs> why the idea of even single women are are now like marriage are still marriage in waiting, and I'm I'm just I'm just tired. I I so I'm tired, and you <laughs> must be exhausted because you're like, oh, let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> it is tired. I, I'm I, if I were gonna define this election, it's yeah. a bitch. I'm tired. Yes, and I think a lot of people were feeling that, but like me in particular, I'm like I'm exhausted. Yeah, And um, this short election, even the ability to like want to respond to things and create assets, even within the context of my work, is the thought of it is exhausting. But I think what makes it even more exhausting is that 
our communities are also fearful. Elections are a very scary thing for to LGBTQ people um, because we don't know what we are going to lose. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, what we're going to hear. Um, so it's exhausting mainly because we just had, it feels like we just had an election a year ago, but it's emotionally exhausting because elections are a very fearful time for all of us. So what about the police? Because here's the thing. I don't know. Um, I think the police, for, for, for some of us, is an election issue, right? And so uh, all I've seen is this prime minister uh, do his performative dance, promises change, and basically hand the RCMP more money to police themselves. And, you know, just for that, I don't want to, I, I really don't want to vote for this man just for that. I'll say it. Ain't happening. Did, did you see that at the, with the last federal budget announcement that to address anti-Black racism that the RCMP was going to be given $192 million? Uh-huh. I did. That's exactly what I, I thought. Yeah. It was, it was the Ottawa police. So like they always just get more money to like listen and learn, which how about you just listen and learn with more money? Listen, there are books out there. Fucking go to Amazon. I don't know. They ain't reading books. <laughs> I said it. I was going to say, they ain't reading. <laughs> Apparently, they're reading all our data, <laughs> you know? And our faces. Oh, there you go. There's another thing. There's so many things. Surveillance is another one. What are we... I just saw a, yet another clear view AI report. I think it was... I, I want to say it was in BuzzFeed. Somewhere around. Anyway. Point being, was it in BuzzFeed? Was it Ryan Mac? Probably. Um, uh, I don't know, but I definitely, definitely had something. It's, it sounds like a BuzzFeed type thing. And, um, you know, work from home introduces surveillance at home, like surveillance technology by employers. We're not even talking about this. You know what scares me? The conservatives scare me in this area. Because if you look at their plan, it looks like a, honestly, it looks like they're building uh, a whole like security, like national security apparatus that's just going to strip away our rights. That's why I'm not voting conservative either. Anyway, I would, anyway, just to like get back into the policing thing, I'd love to hear more about like the intersection of policing and sexuality and as applicable race. Absolutely. So when we talk like, and historians have done it. There's some amazing historians who've looked at the intersection of, like, queer, like, the queer Canadian context and surveillance. Um, some of those experts are Dr. Patricia Gentile, who teaches at Carleton, Gary Kinsman, who I believe is at Queens, um, and Tom Cooper, who I believe is at York. No, he's in Toronto. But they definitely look at, like, the, this, this idea that somehow queer and trans specifically gay and lesbian discrimination was decriminalized in 1969 and they talk about actually that's not true because a significant amount of surveillance that was tied to the fact that our identities were criminal so they're like there's a relationship there a group of people being inherently criminal because of the behavior that they have and what that meant for policing in terms of surveillance crackdowns etc um that still exists so were was homosexuality really decriminalized and we still have that level of surveillance to this day and I think of 
you know, what happened with Black Lives Matter Toronto, I think is a prime example of how that surveillance hasn't really stopped. Um, I don't remember when, but there were like exposés kind of exposing um, these like, like private accounts on Facebook joining like Black liberation Facebook groups to surveil and they were cops, essentially. It was RCMP, essentially. And we see the same thing where two-spirited led um, actions on land defending, and I'm thinking of, um, I'm pronouncing it correctly, Ferry Creek in BC. Those are two spirit folks who are at the forefront. Again, same high level of policing and surveillance, same physical violence to respond to it. Uh, that hasn't changed. Um, and that's why, you know, I receive contact from police wanting to improve relationships with to us LGBTQ people because it is still an ongoing thing. But I think until we recognize that that level of surveillance still exists because of the history of criminalizing who we are on the basis of who we are having sex with because the state said so, um, I don't think we're really going to be separating the fact that surveillance is a thing. And when we look at other movements, because queer and trans people are usually always at the forefront, um, that's where surveillance becomes very, very, very easy. I mean, I, I would hope CSIS doesn't have my contact information from all of the protests that I've been involved in. They probably do, but whatever. But um, that is very much so a thing. And I think people are looking at uh, surveillance in so many different ways now in the context of like social media. If we aren't going to be committed to really fucking with the system um, to its core, we're going to be dealing with this for a very long time. And I don't think the response is to fund those entities to deal with the problem. I don't think so. Um, and something I'll say to us LGBTQ people, especially when we were like looking at the federal budget announcement earlier this year, almost no one mentioned that the RCMP was getting all that funding to address anti-Black racism. I did, I wrote about it. Thank you. Okay, I did. Thank I'm you. I'm just saying I, I did. Because I was upset at the whole notion. Yeah, okay. it's, it's very, very interesting. I, is, it, is it racial change? It's not color of change because that's in the States. But there's, a, there's an organization and it sounds like color of change, but it's not. Anyway, they had put out a statement. And I was like, motherfuck. Because I was like, because I had always, I, I think I'd said this. Uh, I think last year or something that um, Justin Trudeau thinks he can do will fix anti-black racism without touching the police. And I'm like, no, no, you can't have, you can't have your cake and eat it too. I'm sorry. You can't. Cause eventually the police is going to kill yet somebody else and it will come back to you. They don't stop. They won't stop. And you know what the police are doing now? Now they don't want the they don't want vaccine mandates. Apparently, TPS has this has this fight on its hands with their police union because and I just find I find this I find this Schadenfreude like so please let me enjoy this okay. The same politicians who want to increase funding to the police right are the same politicians who the same police are ignoring and saying, you know what? We're not going to do your vaccine mandate. Screw it. Because who's going to tell the police they can't? Who? 
the politicians have lost control over this organization and they just don't know it yet. I can't wait to see this shit go down, by the way. 100%. It's the police unions who run the show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're too scared. And because because to quote unquote normal people slash the normies, as I generally like to call them, the police are still good. And when they're just a little rough around the edges, right? Yeah, we buff them up. Um, you know, they, they people are still very, they don't understand crime. They don't understand the root causes of why things happen. And, you know, a lot of it's the, uh, the um, just circumstances, um, mental health issues, that type of thing. And people just love, they love, absolutely love feeling safe at the expense of others even though it's a false sense of security because i didn't police don't stop crime they just mop it up and even then they don't necessarily solve crime what's the last time the police found a bike that was stolen or a car that was stolen or apparently a murder what's the last time they solved a murder like (laughs) that wasn't obvious to them Okay, I don't think my point is, I don't even think they're that effective. That is my point. I mean, you know, a good example is um, the Bruce Arthur thing, right? Like they don't the police only did it because Justin Ling was like, hi, there's murders happening. Uh, Maybe pay attention. Yep, And it wasn't until it was a white guy in particular who had been murdered that they paid special attention to it and they found out that like seven years earlier that oh there were also murders that like they finally made the connection that all these brown men were being murdered all of a sudden oh my god um, i just ugh. yeah that podcast um, from cbc the village that justin Ling did is really really good um like almost like oral history approach to that um and and also i think shows you again the history in Toronto of the criminalization of queer men and how that history continues to this day with how the police treat our community. Um, It's still there. They literally were like, if there was a group of queer people, criminal activity is happening, we need to go and observe. And that literally is a sentiment we see to this day. Um, One thing I wanted to add to with regards to um, like policing and I think Nora Loretto and Sandy Hudson did a good um, analysis of this, that it really shows how lazy some policymakers are, that police are used as an intervention for anything. Um, one of the, the silliest examples, and I saw a video of it, was I think there was a deer on the highway. And they're like, let's get the police to handle it. It's like, don't we have animal like wildlife rescue to deal with this? Very similar, the response to getting the police when it came to stay-at-home orders. Um, it becomes a very common thing to use policing as one of means is control, but also very lazy policy approach. And I think that needs to be interrogated. And um, people, the people who are, you know, who will call the police on you, they're the people who think the police are their private security force. And that is troubling to me. That's how they use it. All right. I think that does it. This has been a really interesting conversation. Um, I've learned a lot. So have I, actually. Actually, it spurred my thinking juices. Mm -hmm. So, like, then I started making connect. I was like, oh, yeah. 
Yes. Okay. No, I got it. Well, yeah. not all of it. Well, you know what I mean? <laughs> How eloquent. <laughs> you could totally leave that in, by the way. <laughs> Um, Debbie, where can people find you on the internet? So the one private social, well, two private social medias that I have that you can follow me at, I'm at Twitter at D underscore Owusu Acha. I'll spell that out for you. So that's D underscore O-W-U-S-U-A-K-Y-E-E-A-H. And if you're on LinkedIn, because you're a nerd like me, you can find me at Debbie Owusu Acha. Amazing. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I can't wait to see what you have to say about the rest of the election. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll, I'll have things to say. If you follow me on social media, there might be some written pieces you can check out. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, we're doing it. Yes. Let's, we'll, let's we'll do this. Share those. <laughs> yes, thank you. All right. Until next time. Bye. 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 Bye.